Good morning. Greetings and um, a very large thank you to Nick um, and to Jane uh, for this wonderful invitation. Um, Zahra and I were having a conversation yesterday and we felt like we were in an intellectual candy house. Um, <laughs> and I mean intellectual in the sense that Bill Chittick meant it yesterday. Um, we, you know, we, we both are a little bit in awe because the people that we that formed our own scholarship, uh, both Zafra and I are meeting for the first time. So, um, so thank you for this wonderful invitation. Um, and beginning my, my my talk with a story that some of you might be familiar with, and it goes like this: Once upon a time, in the 12th century, there was a rather spiritually precocious young man born in the sun-kissed Andalusian city of Murcia in southern Spain, or Al-Andalus as it was known in that time. Despite his youth, Ibn Arabi had experienced a number of extraordinary mystical visions and was summoned to meet with the wise leading philosopher of the time, Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes. Surprised that the boy was still beardless, Ibn Rushd embraced the youth saying, yes, and to his delight, the young man responded with a clear affirmation, yes. Just as Ibn Rush's face lit up with joy at this confirmation of his life's work, the lad added, with equal resoluteness, no. Perplexed, Ibn Rush seek to clarify the matter, and he asked, what have you arrived at through unveiling and divine inspiration? Is it what rational consideration gives us? The young Ibn Arabi responded evenly, yes and no. Between the yes and the no, spirits take flight from their matter and necks are detached from their bodies. Understanding this vivid illusion, Ibn Rushd, uh, Ibn, uh, Ibn, Ibn Rushd turned pale and trembled and recited the ritual phrase, there is no power and no strength but in God. Now, this evocative encounter between the erudite sage Ibn Rushd and the young Sufi Ibn Arabi reflects some of the varied paths of knowledge within the Muslim tradition. More especially, however, for my paper, the story points to the deep mystery at the heart of reality, a mystery that includes God and human beings, a mystery that cannot be known or contained through binary, rational, and mutually exclusive categories. In the above story, Ibn Arabi suggests that the spaces of knowledge between the rational categories of yes and no, in between spaces encountered through mystical knowledge and expressed through dialectical modes of language, are spaces of flight, movement, and dynamic disruption. In fact, I, it's, it's, the rest of the talk is really an exegesis, uh, an exegesis on the statement that uh, James Morris just made, there are no entities, there is only process. So, in this paper, I explore the ways that mystical knowledge, experiential as it is, presents us with a radically destabilizing and fluid path of knowledge that has profound implications for gender. And I argue that Sufi ways of talking about gender demand a particular existential mode, a mode of receptivity and dynamism which potentially unhinges fixed gender hierarchies. Now, any meaningful discussion of gender within Islam involves attention to the intimate relationship between God 
and the human being. That is, between theology and religious anthropology. God and the gendered human being constitute an elusive mystery at the heart of the Muslim tradition, which eludes static and singular modes of knowing. Let me briefly elaborate on what I mean by mystery, since I'm using it in quite specific ways. Drawing on the incisive scholarship of Michael Sells, mystery is, and I quote, neither a set of abstruse doctrines to be taken on faith, nor a secret prize for the initiated. Mystery is the referential openness to the depth of a particular tradition, unquote. And I would add, it is thus a referential openness to the heart of the human condition, which by definition includes an understanding of gender. Sell adds that the referential openness is fleeting. As soon as one thinks one has it, it's gone. Given the shifting nature of such insights, mystics use apophatic knowledge, the yes and the no, as an epistemological mode or a way of approaching knowledge. According to Searles, in an apophatic mode, any single assertion or statement is limited, falsifying or reifying. It is, he says, a discourse of double propositions in which meaning is generated through the tension between saying and unsaying, unquote. So, in this paper, drawing on the works of Ibn Arabi, I explore the implications of what it might mean to hold a yes and a no, or an apophatic mode for engaging that mysterious concept of gender within Islam. That gender continues to be a mystery is reflected in my view in some of the contemporary feminist debates more broadly. Some of these debates, when read through the lenses of Islamic mysticism, reflect, I would argue, various modes of saying and unsaying gender. I'm going to very briefly refer to three feminist positions through mystical lenses. So I'm going to do a slight um, change. Instead of reading Islamic mysticism through feminism, I'm going to read feminism through Islamic mysticism. So let me give these three examples that I want to then analyze through Islamic mystical lenses. The first one is a contemporary feminist theorist called Judith Butler. In her now classic gender trouble of the 90s, she has irreverently muddied a number of binary categories in previous feminist thinking, including the classical divide between sex and gender, men and women, masculine and feminine, heterosexual and homosexual. These categories, Butler tells us, are entirely the product of our own social constructions. In her terms, there is no essential sexual biological base that is naturally present upon which gender role gets in, get, get attached. Butler's in, intervention invites in a potentially soaring fluidity in understanding sex-gender systems, not allowing us to rest easily with any forms of essentialist difference. Now, whether, we, whether or not we accept these radically free-floating conceptions of embodiment offered by Butler, one of the values of her theoretical work is the destabilization of fixed notions of sex gender. Read through Islamic mystical lenses, she can be seen to be performing a sweeping act of negation, of the no, of unsaying. The second feminist that I'd like to turn to briefly is the French feminist Luce Irigaray, and P.I. know I'm pronouncing her name wrong, um, who presents a rather different approach. One of the frequently state quoted statements is the following, I quote, 
To wish to get rid of sexual difference <clears throat> is to call for a <clears throat> excuse me is to call for a genocide more radical than any form of destruction there has ever been in history. Unquote. While I think she's while I think she's asked what I think she's asking or suggesting is that a negation without an any affirmation may potentially obliterate the mystery that is gender. Yet her assertion and affirmation of sexual difference is nuanced and subtle, with the greater resonance of the ideas found in Islamic mysticism. For Irigare, the challenge is to both maintain gender difference, but without fixing it. One of her commentators, Jean-Joseph Jean Rowe, lucidly summarizes her position as follows. Number one, to overthrow patriarchal power does not mean denying the difference between the sexes, but living them differently. Secondly, to assert the difference between the sexes is not the same as positing an essential femininity or masculinity. It is sexuation that is essential, not the content of the dogmas fixed once and for all in an exhaustive or closed manner, what for eternity belongs to the masculine and what, what belongs to the feminine." Unquote. So we see Irigaray affirming differences while simultaneously refusing to fix them into any one moment or reality. And now to refer to the third, third theorist, and I think she adds a very finely honed notion of gender, is an insight by the Christian feminist Catherine Keller, who says, and I quote, once we can think about gender without firm foundations and unquestionable boundaries, but nonetheless intensify its power to materialize our humanity, we may perhaps endow this erotic de destabilization with a certain agapic persistence. Then we need not plunge, as is so academically tempting, from totalism to relativism, from the absolute to the dissolute. The third space of the resolute begins to open. A subtle sociality, a relationality in which we at once undo and embrace each other become dimly visible. This perspective reflects for me a feminist mode that allows for the barzakh of in-betweenness, of holding gender while refusing to delimit and fossilize it in any unyielding rigid form. For me, these feminist theorists illuminate in a variety of modes that gender remains an elusive mystery despite our most focused attention. Ibn Arabi's work, in my view, presents us with openings that push us precisely to the third space, a subtler sociality, a relationality at, in which we at once undo and embrace each other, to use Keller's words. So to carefully track what such a simultaneous undoing and embrace might mean in relation to Sufism and Ibn Arabi's work in particular, let's review some of the views on human nature that we engage with and some that most of us are familiar with. And central, of course, is the Hadith al-Qudsi, where God says, the heavens and the earth do not contain me, but the heart of my faithful servant contains me. As, such, as so much of Sufi practice and Muslim ritual in general has been described as the attempt to polish the heart as the spiritual center. This polishing is done so that the divine qualities which comprehensively reside in the human heart might be most clearly illumined. 
Ibn Arabi, as has been noted, presents perhaps some of the most sophisticated developments of these ideas on the relationship between God and the human being, reflected in his notion of the complete human or insan kamil. In this vision of the complete human as the living embodiment of a harmonious balance of the divine names or attributes, Ibn Arabi presents us with an archetype of humanity characterized by identity and intimacy with God. However, moreover, this model for real and ultimate human identity, the complete human, which Ibn Arabi explicitly describes in a number of different places as applying in equal and full measure to men and women alike, is rooted in God and forms the basis of humans, human beings' existential identity and knowledge. Hence, progress on the spiritual path, and I use progress on the spiritual path in inverted commas, Robert, progress on the spiritual path demands that a person strives to purify the self from all the internalized deities, those negative qualities that grasp to take hold, and this pr process of polishing, scrubbing away, or weeding out the consuming negative qualities of, for example, anger, greed, arrogance, and other forms of egotism allow for the inner light to manifest. Now, given this model of human spiritual realization, the question about process becomes all important. Ibn Arabi is quite fond of invoking the hadith that we've heard last night, one who knows oneself knows one's Lord. Given the intimate connection of humanity and God, the ways that Muslims speak about God is directly related to how we speak about human beings. So the mysterious nature of God, which is spoken and unspoken with the use of dialectical and paradoxical language by Ibn Arabi, is directly relevant to his understandings of human nature. A dialectical mode creates a productive tension, exploding binary and linear conceptions of God and of human beings and of gender. The use of paradox, ambivalence, and contradiction, as reflected in Ibn Arabi's yes and no, thus impels a fluid conceptual apparatus that resists closure and that resists closure or narrowly defined conceptions of God or human nature. Moreover, this way, this dialectical mode, allows Ibn Arabi to present within language, with all of its limitations, apprehensions that transcend, that transcend normative and established patterns. Beginning with a shared symbol of traditional gender norms as one side of the dialectic is integral for meaning, meaningful communication within a given context. These norms are then countered by the other side, non-normative egalitarian gender narratives. The subsequent transcendence of the established positions through the dialectic opens up vast horizons for transforming the fundamental assumptions on the nature of gender and its signification. So let's engage directly some of the ways that Ibn Arabi uses paradox, ambivalence and contradiction, organic elements of his Sufi method, and by doing so, creates generative spaces of tension that creatively interrupt all our predetermined ideas of gender. Am I speaking too fast? I tend to do that. Okay, just do this if you need me to slow down. Ibn Arabi uses gendered metaphors to describe all aspects of reality. He uses terms such as mothers, fathers, females, males, sexual union, and offspring in unique ways to signify different spiritual phenomenon and different relationships within God, the universe, the universe, nature, as well as within and between human beings. In Ibn Arabi's framework, masculine and feminine principles suffuse the entire sphere of being, 
They are complementary and can operate only in relation to one another. Creation in every realm comes into existence through the interaction or the sexual union of these two principles. Within this framework, maleness reflects primarily the mode of activity, while femaleness is defined by receptivity to action and the capacity to be changed through such action. And it is sexual intercourse between mothers and fathers who unite through the magnetism of love to bear offspring. An active or male reality has the power to act on the receptive or female reality, which in receiving such reality, uh, such activity, becomes the empowered creative site of growth and manifestation. So all things that are receptive to the action of the other or another are considered female. While femaleness and male maleness function distinctively, they are at the level of being or at the ontological level inextricable and equal contributors to the, co the, the creative process. They are thus essentially relational. Now, before we get our feminist knickers in a knot, I would like to expand on Ibn Arabi's use of the term male and female. For Ibn Arabi, there is a clear recognition that the principles of maleness and femaleness are not exclusively associated with men and women, respectively. All human beings characterized by, are characterized by a combination of activity and receptivity in various spheres. In these terms, by the merging of maleness and femaleness. Depending on one's nature, one's state of spiritual refinement, and the particular context or relationship, therefore, a biological man may be female or in a state of receptivity, while a biological woman might be male or in a state of activity. A quick example might help. Ibn Arabi says, and I quote, the speaker is a father, the listener is a mother, the speech between them is a marriage. What comes into in existence from that interaction in the understanding of the listener is the child. Now, one may apply this particular excerpt to Ibn Arabi's own life and relationships with his female teachers, for example, in particular, perhaps Shams or Muna Fatima, with interesting effect. In the context of the refining relationship of discipleship, these women teachers fathered Ibn Arabi's learning. And as a result of his feminine receptivity, he, he allowed their wisdom to penetrate him, thereby birthing his own deepening insight. The point is, it is not biology, but rather a particular relationship or situation that indicate whether one's state is characterized by activity or receptivity. From this perspective, Ibn Arabi's seemingly essentialized gender categories are effectively turned in on themselves to decentralize the nature of gendered human beings. Another example uh, of such unsaying is evident in his discussion on the creative forces in nature. Using the mimetic metaphors of human sexuality, he tells us that the sky as father acts upon the earth as mother, and as a result, all things upon earth are created. In this poetics of creation, what is particularly noteworthy is the distinct absence of hierarchy that values the masculine as the positive heavenly spiritual pole and that degrades the feminine as the negative earthly corporeal realm. On the contrary, Ibn Arabi articulates a very rich appreciation for the dimension of earth and corporeality. And I'm going to give a quote, a long quote, because it's quite beautiful, from the Qutuhat. The earth gives all of the benefits from her essence and is the location of all good. Thus, she is the most powerful of the bodies. The movement of all things does not contest her own movement, 
because they do not leave her sphere. Every foundation manifests, manifests in the earth its, its authority. And she is the patient, the receptive, the immutable, the firm. Her mountains still her quaking, mountains that God made to be her anchors. Whenever she moves from the fearful awe of God, God secures her by means of these anchors. So she becomes still with the tranquility of those of faithful certainty. From the earth, the people of faith learn their certainty. Therefore, it is the mother from whom we come and to whom we return. And from her we will come forth once again. To her we are submitted and entrusted. She is the most subtle of foundations in meaning. She accepts density, darkness and hardness only in order to conceal the treasures that God has entrusted to her. Unquote. In, this for, in these forceful images, while the expanse of sky casts the command of God from on high, the earth is prolific in its receptivity, stability, and subtlety, and subtlety. Through reflecting particular divine attributes, the earth becomes a signifier and a teacher of the spiritual state of faithful certainty. The earth thus provides a, a model for human spiritual seekers and aspirants to shape their own cultivation. Ibn Arabi evokes a complex and beautiful re resonance of divine qualities in this description of the earth, de describing the earth as a sabur, the patient one, one of the 99 attributes. The earth, he tells us, is the mother from whom we come and to whom we return, and echoes the association of the relationship with God we have, as described in the Quranic verse, from Allah we come and to Allah we return. Again, when, when Ibn Arabi says the earth conceals God's treasure, he is beckoning our attention to the Hadith Qudsi, of God as a hidden treasure who desires to be known and creates the world in order to be known. Throughout, we see an intimate connection between the realm of the earth to its divine source, this intricate symbolic lattice in which earth imminently embodies the divine, abundantly manifesting God's qualities, presents a powerful shift in the dominant symbolic economy. Again, Ibn Arabi wedges open a whole history of what we would call patriarchal imagination, his sublime portrayal of the earth offers a marked contrast to the forms of binary thought that view the earth as the lesser material pr principle and necessary evil from which one seeks ultimate escape. His favorable understanding of the earth and its materiality extends to the closely, to the closely related dimensions of the human body. Ibn Arabi presents both Father Sky and Mother Earth as integral to the process of creative manifestation and with no intrinsic superiority to either. By swathing and at times cross-dressing this cosmic creative principles in the normative gender categories of his time, he reconstitutes the nature of these categories. Further, pointing to the universal application of these seemingly gender-specific principles of activity and receptivity, Ibn Arabi observes that all creation is ontologically, or at the level of our being, female in relation to God. God, he tells us, impregnates each being with existence, and I quote, other than the creator, there is not in this universe a male, and those who generally refer to as males are all really females, since there is nothing in creation that is not act upon. So while a feminist reader might immediately become wary of the ways in which the language of maleness as associated with activity and femaleness with receptivity reflect a dominant notion of patriarchal power, we are simultaneously informed that all humanity is female, 
In academic terms, we could say that such a statement reflects an unsaying or a semiotic move that subverts, even as it appears, to reinscribe dominant gender concepts. Elsewhere in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi's description of creation very explicitly draws on women's experiences and feminine images. He tells us that God originally existed as pure being, without otherness and reflection, in a state of undifferentiated wholeness prior to creation. And in this state of solitude, God experienced a deep, experienced a deep longing to be known, as reflected in the Hadith al-Qudsi, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, so I created the world in order to be known. And it is this divine longing that results in what Ibn Arabi calls the first act of sexual union between the divine active and the divine receptive within the one God, which in turn births all things. Ibn Arabi elaborates, telling us that this divine creative force is an unceasing sexual union that is forged wherever the real, lovingly and filled with desire, turns attention to the possible things, beckoning them into existence. Then elsewhere, Ibn Arabi provides us with a more detailed discussion of this birthing of existence, where he employs very explicit images of pregnancy, labor, and birthing, describing God in the state of wholeness and possibility before creation, the yet non-existing entities which carried potential, exerted a metaphysical condition of pressure. He uses the word karp, meaning labor, to describe the state of distress, the divine creative force, the breath of the merciful, in an act of love and plenitude, releases them into the theater of existence. In the same way that women give birth to children, God births the cosmos and reveals her treasures. The vibrant, pulsating, and sensuous images where God loves and desires to be known, where God experiences distress without creation, where metaphors of God include images of pregnancy, labor, mothering, offer glimpses of the 13th century scholar's central contribution to the destabilization of what we would call patriarchal theological constructs. Moreover, this image tells us that God needs creation to complete and manifest divine potential. In particular, the idea that God needs creation and humanity for completion breaks down the, hi the hierarchy of traditional images where God is always Lord above, entirely independent of humanity. Love, desire, and need define the divine creative spark, not simply unadulterated power and indomitable will that demand absolute obedience. The female images of pregnancy, labor, and mothering also reconstitute some of the more hierarchical metaphors for God. They invoke a layer of intimate relation, nurture, and deep connection between God and humanity. Throughout Ibn Arabi's work, the reader discovers pervasive images of God that break down dichotomies and, profound, and present profound formulations of the God-human relationship, which present radical shifts in the ways in which Muslims have thought about the divine. Such images of God exist in contrast to Ibn Arabi's description of God as the only male in existence and creation as female. The gendered ways in which he describes God is contingent on the particular types of relationships Ibn Arabi is attempting to depict at a given time. Each context and relational mode demands a different use of gendered metaphor. And Ibn Arabi is uniquely, com is uniquely comfortable using conventionally masculine and feminine ways of describing God while simultaneously transforming the, tr the conventional way we might think about the symbolism of these categories. However, 
One cannot directly translate these mythic and poetic feminine images of God and creation into direct emancipatory social practice. As feminist scholars of religion like Grace Jansen and Elliot Wilson have illustrated, transformation of symbols do not guarantee socially egalitarian gender practices or even more flexible roles for women. Without inferring that feminine images of God by themselves translate into liberating social possibilities, ruptures of traditional patriarchal images of God are still significant, I would argue. Our previously mentioned feminist friend, Luce Irigaray, who responds to a Jewish Christian imaginary mostly, argued that for women to attain full and authentic forms of subjectivity, female even images of the divine must be created and embraced. And while she's speaking to a very different theological formulation, which is not shared by Islam, there's some truth that might have resonance for, for, for Muslim and other thinkers. Ibn Arabi's diverse and fluid images of gender that include sexual metaphors and feminine visages for the divine are fruitful for feminists and others in search of inclusive and expansive spaces to extend the Muslim imaginary. One of the ways, one of the reasons Irigaray points, uh, one, of the re one of the points made by Irigaray has particular resonance with Sufism and in relation to understanding, understandings of human nature. In his framework, the human, con the human condition for men and women alike is nothing but the embodiment of divine attributes. So the fact that God and humanity are so intimately connected within this Muslim perspective, and that these metaphors for the divine are explicitly inclusive of the variety of gendered images in this part of the tradition is powerful. It destabilizes, in my view, masculine, masculinist notions of gender for both God and humanity. Now, while exploring feminine symbols might provide a counterfoil for the more hierarchical images of the divine, and having affirmed both masculine and feminine images of God, which are both important and vital, we now come to what I really consider the crux of the matter and the most profound aspect of Ibn Arabi's God-human talk. And here it is. Firm attachment to any particular construction of God, whether masculine or feminine, is a fundamental spiritual error. Ibn Arabi is working simultaneously at a number of different registers, so his images of God similarly function at multiple levels. To benefit from journeying through his cosmology, readers must avoid assuming one particular register of meaning. Doing so might mean missing some of Ibn Arabi's most profound insights and treasures regarding his understandings of God and humanity. Rather, readers should attempt to hold together and creatively engage the numerous, numerous registers in which Ibn Arabi uses gender-inclusive language. Following Irigaray's lead, perhaps we would say Ibn Arabi's use of masculine and feminine images of God helped to validate male and female human subjectivities. The view resonates deeply with his consistent assertion that both men and women have full and complete access to the state of Insan Kamil, the individual who manifests the divine attributes in perfect harmony. Irigaray's suggestion, suggestions are therefore helpful in configuring some of the Sufi implications for Ibn Arabi's gendered images of God in relationship to human identities. However, when speaking at the register of the divine, Ibn Arabi does something much more powerful. His use of both masculine and feminine images of God present us with a case of his mystical dialectic, where he uses known gendered images in varying and contrasting ways to ultimately transcend all gendering of the divine. He cautions against 
the error of binding. He encourages us to be vigilant against any attempt to delimit God in any particular way. He warns that people must never fix God into their own conceptual categories. Within a Sufi hermeneutics, all concepts serve as necessary placeholders to be used and discarded simultaneously to circumvent fixed constructions of God. Ibn Arabi's caveat is succinct, and I quote, If you affirm transcendence, you bind. If you affirm imminence, you, de you define. If you affirm both, you hit the mark. You are an imam and a master in the spiritual sciences. This is from the Hussus Al-Hikam. The divine is in a state of perpetual transformation that cannot ever be captured in any one set of images. Ibn Arabi's metaphors create a mystical dialectic of both saying and unsaying the various gendered constructions of God that necessarily appear but also must necessarily disappear to, to remain faithful to the mystery of the divine. As a spiritual guide who points to God's imminent connection to all human beings, male and female, Ibn Arabi provides the reader with gender-inclusive images of God. As a chamberlain of monotheism, he points to God's transcendence of all gendered human binaries and the vast openness of the divine, which prefigures the vast openness of the human being, who is the microcosm of the divine. In both affirming and unsaying gender in his descriptions of God and by implication of humanity, Ibn Arabi hits the mark exquisitely by embracing the plenitude of a simultaneous and paradoxical yes and no position. This approach to God is also an approach to the human being, who for the Muslim mystic is the child of the moment, the child of the breath, refreshed and newly revealed in every instance. This approach undoes static notions of gender, allowing instead for novel ways of imagining and God, be, imagining God and humanity beyond binary formulations. The very work of paradox in the work of Ibn, the very work of paradox in Ibn Arabi, which both recognizes difference and destabilizes them, is not simply to disrupt fixed notions of gender, but more especially to facilitate dynamic movement. The work of par paradox is to mimic or to push us to an existential mode of openness, of invoking the changing face of the divine in every moment and the constantly transforming state of the human being who is the microcosm of the divine attributes. As such, mystical paradox generates a spaciousness and a capaciousness that can forge a path of liberation from restrictive gender moles without simply saying that gender does not exist. It does and it does not. Sufi language is thus deeply iconoclastic. In the true spirit of the prophetic Muhammadi revolution, it unhinges the patriarchal idols of rave hide and fixed categories of gender. Thank you.